Rusty Quill presents. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey everybody, this is Tyler Bell, your friend, host of the West Side Fairy Tales. It's June 2020 and this is the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club episode where we're going to be talking about Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings and Pan's Labyrinth, directed by Guillermo del Toro. These are two books that I picked well before this month and uh, these months, it's it's one of those things where like, I didn't intend for these things to be very uh, on point, so to say, with the things that are occurring in the world right now. Um, I, could say, I could have said the, the same thing about you know, some of the last few ones. I, I, don't, I don't intend to be a, a topical writer. I don't really feel like that kind of creator. Um, I don't have the ability really to sit down and start writing fiction based on stuff that I see outside. That might not make any sense. Cause I know I, I say, and I am inspired by the things that are going on around me at any given time, but I can't do the law and order version of writing. Um, if you're not familiar with the, uh, the, the, the television show law and order and its various permutations, um, they always manage to be oddly topical, while also completely missing the point. Uh, it, it's a lot of like fear-based what's going on right now in the media thing. Uh, SUV or SVU, sorry, is, uh, is, is more um, gratuitous with this, you know? But you can often see like whoever the flavor of the month is for, for, for criminal activity or, or for some sort of dangerous, potentially dangerous, you know, middle white class America frightening type thing that's going on that that'll that'll show up um i remember when uh anita sarkeesian who is you probably don't know and don't bother looking her up she's this person that's involved in uh, video game criticisms and stuff and that whole place is just a, a minefield of of bad actors and people that don't know how to make points about things that they don't understand <laughs> on both sides. But uh, she, she uh, got death threats, which is not good. And they made an episode, I think it was of SVU where there were gamers threatening these uh, gamer girls 
And I've seen chunks of the episode and it's the most hilariously cringe, <laughs> uh, unresearched un thumb so far off the pulse of understanding the issues at hand that it's hilarious. But it, it, nobody, it, it, it paints a very bad picture of, of guys that play games, but even people that are like on the opposite side of that conversation would be like, that's that, that's not really the point we were trying to make about misogyny in the video game world. Uh, thank you for thinking of us, but this doesn't really help anybody. Uh, one of those sorts of things which I just, I find funny as hell. Um, but I, I can't, I can't write like that. Not because it's, it's particularly bad. There's, there's other, other people that write and it's, uh, they do that same sort of creation and it's, it's, it's very good. Um, I can't really think of any examples offhand, but I assure you they exist. I'm not being, I'm not being facetious, but I, I just can't do it uh, because it's a little forced for me and anything even slightly forced. I just can't, I can't, I've tried and I just, it slips over my head. If I start writing about things that are going on right around me, I just want to slip right into nonfiction and just start doing it journalistically because otherwise I get afraid of uh, making mistakes in real time, which I think is what you should really be afraid of in those circumstances. Uh, it's easy for me to write about something that's already happened. You know what I mean? Because you have the benefit of, of 2020 vision and then looking at that, you can sort of create a narrative around, you know, hey, these are the mistakes that they made and this is the result that occurred and then, you know, relate that into the future somehow and, and all that sort of stuff. But really when things are happening in real time, you can never be 100% sure that you know exactly what you're talking about. Even if you believe 100% in something and you're going to support it no matter what, there's always a chance that, you know, you're making a mistake or, or, or this or that. And if you're going to make one of those mistakes, make that mistake in a nonfiction context. You know what I mean? Because then you can't, you're at least hampered by the facts that you know. And you can go back and say, like, I didn't know those facts. As opposed to say, like, well, I didn't mean to, to create this gigantic overarching narrative in which this thing that was mildly misunderstood was actually portrayed as extraordinarily evil. Which... Again, not something I can come up with a, a, an effective example for offhand, but I know if those of you out there that read and write a lot uh, and watch TV and, and movies and are real consumers of, of fiction, you, you know examples of the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. But I, oh, no, I don't, I don't quite digress. I, I guess in the case of this month's uh, selections, I think it's just... Maya Angelou's work continues and will probably continue being relevant and timely even long after, long after the civil rights debate and uh, movement in America. That's the very, um, very much, you know, black people and white people and are, are strained and odd and oftentimes gross relationship for the past several hundred years. Once that's, if not, you know, I don't even want to say it like while I'm talking about it, like it's going to be something that's like in the past, in the past, because, you know, that, that could happen hilariously within a year, although that's obviously not going to fucking happen or even something like 20 or 30 years, but could be something that's going to continue going on for a hundred, 200 years, 
but like if you if so I want to I want to explain that timeline before I say you know even after that sort of conversation has resolved itself and is done I think you know if we still live in a a world where where people can talk about things you'll still understand injustice and stuff through a lens or you'll be able to understand injustice and and a lot of different types of, of suffering and, and strength and overcoming through a lens that's as powerful as, as Maya Angelou's. That's my, my ultimate point. And there's parts of that story that are, that are effective for, for other conversations that aren't even quite a part of the one that's happening right now. You know, a lot of things about, about women's rights and, and how children are raised and all sorts of stuff. It, I feel like when it comes time a little bit later in this uh, program to talk about why the caged bird sings. I'm not going to talk about it uh, narratively because there are a lot of people who have done that way better than me. And uh, I don't want to embarrass myself. Functionally speaking, I'm kind of afraid of digging into uh, why the caged bird sings from anything more than a, a very surface level. Uh, but we'll, we'll we'll get to that. I'm interested in uh, talking about some stuff I've seen recently, uh, and that'll that'll get me very upset. And then <laughs> then I'll start talking about um, the actual recommendations. So things that I have been watching recently, uh, I've been watching. As I and I know I know a few of you out there enjoy the Joe Bob Briggs show. Uh, the last drive in with Joe Bob Briggs, which is amazing. You should absolutely check it out if you have any interest in the creation of and the history of horror movies and their their relevant connections to the greater world of cinema absolutely go check out joe bob briggs unfortunately i watched the movie cannibal holocaust which was part of one of his recent episodes i don't blame him for putting it on i think it's important that something like that and now I know it's like the weird argument, but it's important that something like that exists because it is the base level to which no other thing should descend from. Like if you are at or below the level of just unacceptableness as Cannibal Holocaust, your movie should not exist. Cannibal Holocaust should be the only one and anything that's within a range around it should just get firebombed out of existence. If you're not familiar with Cannibal Holocaust, it is a narrative within a narrative, which I never, I never thought it would have that complex of a storytelling device, but it does. Even looking back on the film, I'm surprised that it is a narrative within a narrative. Uh, within a narrative, actually, it's a, it's a, it, it's actually a three-layered story now that I now that I remember. The primary layer is there is a, and I'm not even going to bother clicking on the fucking Wikipedia article or doing any research into the names and the dates and stuff about this because there is a potential of me running into things about the movie that disgusted me and I don't want to do that. But basically there's a guy who is a uh, documentarian and he's selling a TV show or a movie, something like that, some sort of film media property to these uh, suits somewhere in New York City. And he's talking to them and telling them like, hey, the footage that I found 
is really fucked up and no one should, it, it's probably not something that you guys should watch. Uh, but I found it and I brought it back because you paid me to do that. And I did. And so inside that story of him talking to them is his actual story of going and finding the footage, which it's odd to think, but it is well done as far as a, uh, a narrative construction. It's actually very interesting uh, of a story where he goes back and he retraces the steps of these four hippies basically that go that went out into the Colombian wilderness ahead of him and uh, tried to make their own documentary. And these people were well-known documentarians who mostly filmed like fucked up stuff, you know, like uh, war crimes and things. And the one example is given of their previous work, which is a film in which some, I, I believe they're Africans are, uh, involved in some sort of wartime atrocity and they are executing civilians. The note of that part of the movie is that in the movie, in the fictional universe of the movie, that is film footage that was faked in order to make it all look worse than it was. And so that they could sell it and say like, there's this conflict going on and the conflict's not really happening, which is uh, journalistically horrific on so many levels. Like if I can take an aside right there, the thought of somebody creating a conflict, especially an, an international conflict like that, when there exists none, is so fucking scary. Because it's so easy to do. It, it would make sense, you know, back in the day to, to false flag the existence of an atrocity um, through, a, through a fake documentary. I, it's scary to me because I'm, I would not be surprised if it was actually done. I haven't done research. There's probably some evidence that somebody faked a war between two people in order to do something political in the region, but I digress. It's kind of presented in the similar vein as like the, uh, the Rwandan genocide, right? The real life version of that is that this is found footage in real life. It's, it's repurposed nonfiction footage of actual war crimes. And I knew it. I knew what I was looking at because I know what people look like when they get shot immediately. I was like, Oh, okay. That's actually people getting shot because in real life getting shot does not look like it does in the movies. It's not, it's not particularly gruesome actually, or gory. It's not extreme. There's not big blood splatters popping out. It usually looks like somebody nothing happened at all. And someone doubles up and you know, there's, there's spasms and stuff and I won't get into it, but I was like, Oh shit, that person actually got shot. That's, that's, that's what a gunshot looks like. And then, you know, it's not a short scene either. So I was like, I don't want to be watching this because I know what this is. And then it's like later presented as being fake. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm so confused. And this is early in the narrative. I think this is within the first like 20 or 30 minutes. That's bad. What the, what the movie does good is actually one of my favorite types of storytelling conventions, which is the retracing the steps and finding the artifacts of the lost voyage kind of deal. It's a, it's a, great, it's a great storytelling thing, storytelling device that's not used exceptionally often. I don't, I don't know if it's just other people don't enjoy it very much, but I love it. 
I think I've seen it in a lot of other stories where it's not done well. Most notably the 2000s era remake of The Thing, the the, the quote-unquote The Thing prequel, which is one of the most abysmal disappointments of a film ever. Maybe one day I'll rewatch that and, and, and do like a review or something on it, but I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to talk about it at length in this, but basically, you know, you go through, you go around and you find stuff and you're like, Oh shit, what could this mean? And the cool, it's, it's the, the, the jeopardy version. It's in the jeopardy inversion. You know, you give the answer and then you've got to find the question, which I really like because it puts your brain in action. Because if you take somebody to the end of the action, you say, this is the result their brain will do so much more work than if you tell them like, this is the potential of, of what's going to happen from the other side. You know, two guys walk into a room with knives. You're like, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe they'll fight each other or maybe there's something that they're going to cut up in there or blah, 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 blah. But one guy walks out of a room missing a hand. His shirt is covered in blood and, and and torn and he just like slides down the wall you're like okay this is what happened here <laughs> i need to i need to work back through the investigation i think because of how powerful of a storytelling technique that is for some reason people just don't do it enough it's the same thing that is always employed almost always employed in good good true crime you you start with the investigation the you know the aftermath, the walkthrough, the, 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 the talking about the body, and then you've got to go back through and find out what's really happening. That's, that's I think, why that's so good. But it doesn't, it doesn't work for a lot of different types of narratives. You couldn't really do it with a lot of like superhero films. Obviously, you couldn't do it with a romance almost at all. You could if you were extremely good, but I don't think... I don't think that a lot of romance authors are going to try to uh, start out with they got together. Here's how it would be. It would be difficult and you'd have to do a lot of extremely interesting things that I, I think are a little just uh, they don't work with the, the romance genre, which is always supposed to be more in the comfy, more in the comfy area of, of, of book creating, not the challenging area. But I, I digress. No disrespect to romance authors. Actual romance authors will know what I'm talking about. They have a very specific type of book that they write to the point there's, there's acronyms that go along with it. I can't remember off the top of my head, but if you stray too far outside of that, you're technically not really even in the romance writers conventions. So it, 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 regardless, let's get back to the story at hand. So yeah, uh, cannibal Holocaust continues on this interesting thing. But the whole time it is just peppered and infested and infected and full of awful, horrific animal abuse. And when I first heard about this story, I heard about it in the context that there was like one animal was killed on screen for food. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, so... You put the butchery, the, the killing and the butchery of an animal by someone who does that on film, which, you know, would disturb a lot of people. People don't want to know where that kind of food comes from. So a lot of people who are vegetarians and vegans know where that food come, comes from and they don't they don't appreciate it and don't want to eat it anymore because of that. But even from a strictly creative standpoint, I was like, OK, so you could put that relatively banal thing inside a film to really spice up 
how intense it is. It's not something I would ever do because I would never, I, the good thing about fiction is no one has to get hurt. That's the best thing about it. No matter what happens, I I can write the most fucked up, insane shit. And you know that the only person that really got hurt during the creation of it is me. You know, like the, 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 the pain and stuff that you see on in my writing is all mine that I'm sharing with you. But I didn't have to hurt anyone else. I didn't have to inconvenience a single person to get to the end of that story. Especially an animal. Uh, in this film, I will not go into details, but there's at least four animals that are killed on screen, graphically butchered in some, some respects, and not cleanly, and not by people who are clearly professionals. It is unacceptable. Unacceptable. Even me at my edgiest teen phase would have been repulsed by this. And I think that's the only kind of people I can see this appealing to are the extraordinarily depraved. Extraordinarily depraved. And maybe that subsection of teenage boys who are trying to show off how strong they are inside by letting their friends know the extent of the horrible shit that they can be exposed to without flinching, which is not a good thing necessarily. It's an inherent and incumbent part of young boys' lives. I'm Growing up as a teenager, I can tell you that it was a very strong part of mine. Looking up stuff like, you know, I was early internet in the 2000s. Early 2000s is when I was really a teenager. And so, you know, we had beheading videos and the old faces of death stuff. And you would try to like watch like, have you seen this fucked up thing? But there was also always an understanding that, at least to me, that we were not supposed to be doing that. And that what we were seeing was wrong fundamentally. But I think a a movie like this might open the doors for somebody who doesn't think that that's wrong to watch it. And I mean, on top of this, there are uh, just gross things that are put on screen. There's graphic rape, pretty graphic. I mean, it's not an XC-17 I don't think it's an XC-17 film. I don't think it is. But, uh, you know, you don't see a lot of uh, sex organs, basically. But women are, women are brutalized. Women are, 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 are sexually assaulted. They're beaten. They are hurt. Uh, the, uh, violence against women in this is almost to a flat, if not at a flat 10 uh, violence against men is right up there. Violence against Aboriginal Native people solely for the fact that they are Aboriginal and Native people is at a 10. And then when you find out the filming, things that happened in the filming where they were being told to stay in, literally inside of smoke-filled burning buildings so that the director could get the shot of them running out one by one, stretched out as long as possible. I mean, that's an 11. Uh, It is, I've heard the term exploitation film, as many people have, 
throughout their lives. Um, and, you know, you have your own view of it. In, in my opinion, there are some exploitation films that are called exploitation films that I think are actually better for the people that are, are being exploited, quote unquote, than they are for the people who are supposed to be enjoying the exploitation. You know what I mean? It was kind of subverted, like, hey, we're going to have you do this and this. And wasn't that crazy? And those people are like, oh, yeah, that's insane. Would be weird to see guys kissing on film or or it would be weird to see women having like a uh, a healthy, healthy female, female relationship. You know, I, I, but this is not that. There is no redeeming quality of this film, save the ones you have to like think of indirectly to the point where I was so, I have never in my fucking life actually been fully tested on the, uh, you know, is there something that you think that is a uh, created work, a piece of medium that shouldn't exist or should be censored or something. And I still don't think this film should be censored quote unquote. I think it shouldn't fucking exist. I, I think, like I and I have to say the one reason that it's good that it exists is that no one else will try to make it because every time somebody brings up that this film is around, they're gonna get smacked down. I think that the rights to it, the rights to reprinting it, should all be somehow gathered up and made into a way that this is only ever visible for free places. And that any money that's raised from it and that maybe even it should have to be like gone back and people should be retroactively charged for selling copies of this piece of shit. All of that cash should have to go to uh, the indigenous people in that area and, and animal rights groups. The only thing I can say that the the violence against the human beings in it is not as bad to me as the violence against the animals that is that I understand that all the human beings survived uh, mistreated exploited uh, just shit on completely and there's more to say about that that I'll get into but and I'm not going to say what happens to some of these animals but you can use your imagination as bad as you think it's going to be. It's worse. It's stuff that you've heard the things that I've written and that I've, 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 I've been a part of the monstro stuff. This actually sickened me to the point that I was grinding my fucking teeth while I was watching it. And I hate saying this stuff out loud because in my head, I'm like, you said my, my brain is going back to my old Marine Corps days. And you're like, you sound like a fucking pussy, dude. You sound fucking weak, but no, dude, I have never been pissed while I was watching a film. I could not imagine some guys sitting around going, oh, wow, that's crazy. Wow, man, it's wild. You know, like you do when, when you watch like the most mentally debased, brainless slasher film and you're like, oh man, that killer was off the hook. Or like, oh, look, this stupid bitch is going to go in the fucking room. Ah, oh, she took an ax to the face. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. I'm all about that feeling. Anybody that would watch Cannibal Holocaust and feel that, I have to say, you are, you're definitely in a certain class of people <laughs> that maybe shouldn't be around or allowed around other people. Maybe you should, maybe you should uh, 
seek some help. If you're getting help, maybe you should just mention the feelings that you feel when you watch this film to your therapist or your significant other or anyone that you know and 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 uh and process that fucking cannibal holocaust i've been waiting to talk about that until i got here just because i needed to get that out and obviously me and me and sam were of a mind my fiance who watched the film with me we were of a mind about it all the people in the show and joe bob's last drive-in were clearly of a mind about it as well there was no like oh you know here's the defense even the uh even the descriptions of the director joe bob was like I, he makes some excuses for this film but uh i have talked to people that were actually actors on the film a lot of them didn't know what was going to happen or or were too late to say anything or like maybe I think even one of them was actually kind of a weird guy and like way too into doing stuff. But even the, uh, they, they even try to present it as, you know, being at least some of the real versions of these tribes on film. And even that's not the case. The uh, there's, there's one tribe that's actually on it. That's actually just them. They just went to these indigenous people and they have, they have a very specific look. They have these like bowl cuts, you know, and they, their their skin tone is this specific skin tone. And they all kind of look like a people, you know, they have a, a cultural genetic heritage that you can see. But apparently there was other people that were indigenous in the area and he just made them dress like these indigenous people, even though they had their own culture and stuff because he wanted to keep a uniform. So there's that. There's that bit of like Jesus fucking Christ, dude. Added on top of it. I can't, I should say that he's Italian, so at least, you know, I don't have to claim him as an American. <laughs> he's an Italian filmmaker, so there's that. I, I don't know what that is. It's just me trying to not have to take responsibility to a degree for his horse shit. But I guess really the, the thing is, is no matter what kind of indigenous person you are, even if uh, <laughs> even if it's late into the 1900s, you can still still be exploited by a fucking white European guy. <laughs> You're not safe. Um, and fuck, fuck if that, if it's not all just on point with what's going on right now, this June, I've watched a lot of other good stuff. It's just, it, none of it, none of it really sticks in the crawl as much as cannibal fucking Holocaust. But yeah, I would say I, I might do a review or something, but if I ever did, just understand that it's it's for quality a zero for enjoyability a zero and for horror a five <laughs> avoid it final grade jesus fucking christ that film let's talk about maya angelou uh, like i said earlier i'm not going to really get too much into uh the plot and the breakdown of i know why the caged bird sings that book deserves to have college courses taught on it a lot of times because if you have somebody that is not a black person, a black woman, especially from the American South, getting into the context of what's happening chapter by chapter, just so that you know historically what happened is important. I, it's one of those things where I, I read 
well, I know why the caged bird sings because I was like, why haven't I read this? I'm 30. I think I read it like three years ago, three, maybe four years ago. Why haven't I read this book yet? Uh, anyway. Answers abound, obviously. But just getting into it, it's one of those things where you have to look up like, what was, is all of it true? You know, is this, is, is any of this just exceptional? And what you really get from it when you, when you compare it against the historical subtext is that Angelou actually didn't waste too much time talking about shit that she already knew. <laughs> You're like, oh, this seems really bad. You're like, oh no, look it up. It gets worse. It gets worse. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about Maya Angelou. She was obviously a writer, poet, civil rights activist. She was born in St. Louis, Missouri, April 4th, 1928, and died May 28th, 2014, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which is Winston, Winston as in Winston cigarettes. She's, she's out in tobacco country. She was active from 1951 to 2014. Her most notable work is, of course, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, which was released in 1969 and the first best-selling novel by a African-American woman in, in history, I believe, yeah, it, it, especially in America, but I think all over. I think all over it was the, uh, the first bestseller. So, you know, even on the English charts and whatnot. Let's go back a little bit through her life. I'm, I'm just getting this real simple. This is just, uh, you know, footnotes, Wikipedia and stuff. She was born Marguerite Ann Johnson. She became a poet, writer after a series of occupations as a young adult, including fry, fry cook, sex worker, nightclub dancer and performer, cast member of the opera Porgy and Bess, coordinator for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and journalist in Egypt and Ghana during the decolonization of Africa. If that's not, like, if you can't even just pick up the context in that series of jobs that she had to do to become Maya Angelou, like, that is just profound. Like, the opportunities that were afforded to her were sex work and uh, base restaurant jobs, which she was probably felt lucky to get at the time. You know what I mean? Because... People weren't trying to hire black people to do fucking anything. And if you could hire a black guy or a black woman, you hired a dude because you're also probably a fucking sexist <laughs> at the time. And uh, she, she turned all of that into being a foreign correspondent during the decolonization of Africa, which that's just mind blowing as far as an art goes. But really, she was probably always capable of becoming that person that she became at the end. Not really probably as in like she might've had the talent. She always had the talent to do that, but given a different set of circumstances from her birth, she might not have even wanted to do that. She might've been just comfortable being a, a local politician or a doctor or a lawyer, but that's what she, that's what she turned an extremely powerful and, and supple brain that is just absorbent and good at pulling stuff in and, and clarifying and codifying and then returning that back into the world of such poetry and dedication to the written form that's it's, it's absolutely exceptional. I digress. Uh, in 1982, she was named the first Reynolds Professor of American Studies at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. 
She was active in the civil rights movement and worked with Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Beginning in the 1990s, she made approximately 80 appearances a year on the lecture circuit, something she continued into her 80s. 1993, she recited her poem, On the Pulse of Morning, at the first inauguration of Bill Clinton, making her the first poet to make an inaugural recitation since Robert Frost at the inauguration of John F. Kennedy in 1961. Man, like, just wow. That's just exceptional. And I believe she wrote the, I know why why the caged bird sings as a challenge. Uh, And I'll, I'll get into that as a bit too, but I I don't feel like it's even appropriate to just sit here and gush over, over her. I, I like, I don't feel like I'm adding much to the conversation, but she's just such an exceptional person. And it's odd that a lot of people haven't read the book. I know why the caged bird sings um, was released. Like I said, in 1969 and it is uh, exceptionally, exceptionally easy to read. It is not a, a difficult book. I think it's one of those things, just like the like jazz music and blues that the black community has given to American culture, where it's a, a, a perfect blend of exceptionally difficult things while also being very approachable. You know, no, it's not hard to appreciate blues music. Once you start hearing it, you're like, damn, that's, I feel that. I get that feeling. It's the same thing with I Know Why Why the Caged Bird Sings. You don't have to have a a doctorate in English to get into it. It's not something that's like a lot of high school books, like the Scarlet Letter and stuff, where where you're going to have to read along with like a thesaurus and stuff. You might have to read along with an accurate history book, but, you know, that's more of a, that's more of a statement about the, the the state of American historic understanding of what we've gone through than Maya's ability to to convey what she's going through and what she's thinking, what she's feeling. In that case, and honestly, you'll 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 learn a lot anyway. And and it's just like blues music; it's not easy to play. You know, she does the work for you to make it simple and and poetic and beautiful so that you want to go from 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 passage to passage and your brain's just like I'm I'm about this I'm feeling this like I know what you're saying and I know why you're taking me along on this ride and that's the same thing with just like blues music which is extremely important to me as a as a creator it's blues and jazz uh modal african american music in that, in those styles and with those those understandings, is very important to me as, as a creator because it informs a lot of the way that I make stuff. In which you've got to you've got to layer things and you've got to understand feeling and flow and modalities, which I won't really get into. But how different types of things will will work together in a broad sense that that will make people feel the way you're feeling. Blues is really really fucking hard to play the intro stuff is easy and everyone can everyone that gets up to blues if you have a a basic sense of rhythm 
and a basic sense of melody, you know the basic blues run, you know. Then you get 16 bar blues and 8 bar blues and all that all that sort of stuff. But once you actually take that that the simplicity of that, you know, those 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 little rhythmic melodic underpinnings, you can dance on top of it and create things of astounding astounding complexity and difficulty. You know, uh, bringing up a white guy in this case, but Stevie Ray Vaughn's, uh, what the hell is the name of that song? That's where you see a man, my sweet little thing. Um, that song is incredibly difficult to play. Like you, you have to be top, top of the chops to work through the entirety of that. But it seems just so effortless and gliding and stuff. And, and that's really what it what what that gives to you and if you don't know what i'm talking about i'm sorry this is something that is actually kind of hard for me to explain but um to wrap it all back in it's part of some of the extremely potent adjustments to western culture and the western understanding of of music and creation of music that that the black community has given to us not potentially even willingly and not through not in a way that they were compensated equitably equitably or 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 fully for but that we still get to enjoy and you know there's a lot to be said about that i think there maybe even just to add on to that there's this guy named ben shapiro who is if you know who he is you're like ugh <laughs> or maybe you're not but uh, he was talking about, he, he's a, the kind of guy that tries to sideways denigrate black culture uh, in, in, in a way that's very palatable to, to his predominantly white audience. And he was talking about classical music. And if you know anything about classical music, you start getting to things like 12-tone equal temperament. And then if you get deeper, the, the, the changes from between like Baroque and classical, it's, it's a huge, a huge tradition. And, and, but it's easy for somebody to say classical, and then you just kind of just start assuming things like Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, even though they're not all necessarily even in the same type of field in creation. Classical music is basically just, in the most broadest sense, symphonic Western music made with usually an orchestral setup or a symphonic setup most often put together based on an understanding of 12 tone equal temperament spread out over an 88 key keyboard tuned to C. Uh, and you know, that, that this is me literally failing to dunk, but looking like I'm jumping very high, <laughs> but he tries to denigrate this sort of stuff by saying it's it's simplistic and his his argument is that rap music which is a tradition that is an evolution in itself of of multiple multiple different backgrounds an incredible incredible amount of traditions of many different cultures goes into creating songs that you understand as 
anything from Nicki Minaj's, you know, you a stupid hoe to uh, what's her, her fucking song that I love. If, if my, if Sam is listening to this in the future, she's fucking screaming at me right now. But uh, hold on. I'm going to look it up. I, it, this is my fault because my brain is misfunctioning. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, Roman's revenge, which is fire. Yes. So, you know, like in, 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 and why those two things are of equivalent value, even though you look at it and you want to say, or someone like Ben Shapiro looks at it and he wants to say, you know, oh, this, this one song, this is ignorant. And it's, it's not, it's not trying to, to reach to the auspices of, of, of value. You know what I'm saying? It's not saying something that is profound as, for instance, and I think even Nicki Minaj would probably say this as a, like, dust i rise from 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 my angelou herself so those that's not a, it's not a it's not a fair equivalency because it's one of those things that's they're all part of the same tradition and some part of that tradition is it's just fucking around and honestly it is as a song like stupid ho which is just absolutely ridiculous and very very fun and that's the point of it is more part of the Western tradition than even uh, Nicki Minaj's better song, Roman's Revenge. Because you can say that the historical underpinning of Stupid Ho is a direct ancestral evolution of the song Leshmish im Ash by Amadeus Wolfgang motherfucking Mozart, which is a song that translates from the German to literally lick my asshole. <laughs> And was a published song that he sang in public for fun. He constantly made dumb, shitty songs like that. And he was parroting things and being vulgar and, 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 and efficacious and, and disgusting in a time when you, you think about all these lofted, arched columns and marble windows and gold gilding, which is what I think what people think of when they think of classical music, mostly because they don't know anything about it. And I I don't think anybody that's listening to an exceptional amount of Ben Shapiro is really trying to understand the Western canon and tradition of music, which is a tradition of dozens upon dozens of different countries that fucking hated each other in Europe, as well as influences that are not even European on the music. You know, you have multi-tonal systems that come from, from people throughout the Ottoman Empire, what you would call Turkey nowadays, nowadays which is a heavy influence on music like uh, System of a Down. System of a Down is Middle Eastern music. It's a Middle Eastern death metal, basically, although it doesn't sound like it. Maybe not Middle Eastern, but Northern Mediterranean highly Muslim area, Turkish death metal. It's, it's, it's multi-tonal music. It's the same thing with uh, Pat, what's his name's, um, oh, Miserlou. Miserlou is, is, is a Middle Eastern song, but it's a rock song, but it's based off a of Middle Eastern tradition. That fucking... Wow, wow. That fast-paced high amount of uh what is that 30 second note picking on on strings and all in that uh that harmonic key that is not an american tradition that is american american music 
benefiting from, you know, people that we don't give a fair shake to in America. You know, that that's the Islamic conglomerates through there, through throughout the, the Middle East and up into Southern Europe. That's their music that people from that area brought here. And without Miserloo, you don't have Pulp Fiction looking cool as shit. And without people understanding that Samuel L. Jackson is the fucking man, you don't have Pulp Fiction looking cool as shit. It's a white dude that made it, Quentin Tarantino. And there's all kinds of (laughs) unacceptable language in that film. But you don't get that, which you would say, I think a lot of people agree, that is the epitome of Western culture at that time. That's a that's an arc point. You don't get that without Middle Eastern music and 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 African American music and and just African stuff in general. It's crazy. But that's what makes us great. And it's very approachable. And I think that's something that women and creators and and black Americans like Maya Angelou have given to this. They 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 deconstructed the 12 the 12 tone equal temperament system that we have in Western music. You know what you consider when you listen to bum, 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 And they took that and they just deconstructed it. And then you get you know, swing between notes and, 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 uh, just riding ass fucking guitar solos. Incredible, incredible virtuoso finger picking skills throughout the entirety of the Mississippi River Delta, not to mention most of that spreading out area where we get Mississippi River Delta blues and stuff. Smashing guitars, obliterating them in a way that Spanish traditionalists who we're playing a lot of that uh, like flamenco type would be hearing and being like, that is, I wish I could play that. How the hell did you just do that? Are you just riding with your thumb right there? And then, okay, so that's how you're, they would have great conversations about that. And the point is, is that it's so difficult to make exceptional, high level, incredibly powerful and profound and dark topics like the ones that Maya Angelou brings up in this book so approachable. It's quite literally almost impossible. I know everybody listening to this to some degree, if you're in America, you might've been to a creative writing class in your life or had one of those moments in English class where you had people share and they were talking about extremely dark stuff in their life. That's what people want to talk about. You know, I hurt, I hurt, it comes out, I hurt. And I feel, and, 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 and you know, I'm being crushed. And Maya Angelou is doing those same stories that it's that same that teenage angst that that early 20s feeling lost with the much greater pain of of post civil war antebellum reconstruction anti-black sentiment jim crow southern racism on top of it like a layer of grease and still coming out of it and you feel for her and you want more. You know, when, you, when you're in one of those classes and you see people just, you know, putting their guts out, it, it can be 
hard and hurtful and you, you, people don't want to look at that. They want to look away. But with Maya Angelou, you want to understand, you want to feel, and that's because she's so fucking good at it. I really cannot hammer home how powerful her prose is artist to artist. Like, and she actually has an approach to writing that's very similar to the one that I've adopted as my own, which is kind of cool. Cause when I started reading her, I was like, Oh, she does rhythm the same where actually really, I do rhythm the same way that Maya Angelou does rhythm, which is a extremely specific type of thing to talk about. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not tooting my own horn. It's just nice to see that someone that's so well-respected and incredible figured out, developed and mastered a style that I'm kind of coming into my own in, or maybe not even necessarily a style, but an approach that I'm coming into my own in. And then that I consider my own. It's like, it's great to find that you're walking into a room where the only company has been one of the most exceptional writers that have ever lived. But I think in my descriptions of this, hopefully I didn't lose everybody with my talking way too much about music, but I think that's the difference between or really the, the, the value of someone like Maya Angelou versus somebody like Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro being the guy that tries to be, uh, you know, his, his thing is like facts over feelings, facts over feelings. You, you shouldn't, you know, I, I'm only saying it because it's true, that kind of stuff. While, while, you know, in one hand, he's trying to prevent you, present you with the truth. On the other hand, he's trying to, to hold back the entirety of the culture. Because his, his thing is, you know, uh, I consider rap to be a, uh, a de, de-evolution, I think is how he says it. Rap is a de-evolution, a de-evolution of rock, which is a de-evolution of blues, which is a de-evolution of, of classical music. As in, i.e., all things that black people have accomplished, they really only accomplished because of the inherent value of Western culture, which, despite the pain that they went through, is the only reason that they're successful, which is until you've actually broken down that statement and seen how insidious it is, you don't understand like the real shit that fucking Maya Angelou was talking about. They're trying to cut me out before I've even had my say by saying the things I say can't be of value because of who I am when I'm saying them. That's my, that's my sort of overarching piece. And I I don't believe that. And I think I, I think now going into this stuff and Juneteenth is coming up and people are starting to get a little bit more woken up about how badly their neighbors have been, have been treated. I think it's important to talk about stuff like that. And, uh, it's, it, dude, it's Maya Angelou. So, uh, okay. So still I rise is my favorite poem from her. She's got a lot of good ones. But uh, I'm going to end my my conversation with conversation about why I know why the caged bird sings. I'm going to read this to you guys, and then if you haven't read this book, uh, and actually, why the caged bird sings is its own poem too, I think. But um, I'm going to read this to you, and if this doesn't sell you on going out and checking my Angelou, I don't think anyone could. So this is uh, still I rise. You may write me down in history with your bitter, bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt 
but still, like dust, I rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns with certainty of tides, just like, hoping, just like hopes springing high, still I'll rise. Do you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard? Because I laugh like I've got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness. But still, like air, I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean leaping and wide. Welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. And so with that, I'm going to end my conversation on Maya Angelou and her exceptional work. Uh, I know why the caged bird sings, and I implore you, implore you, implore you to check out her stuff, and really uh, the great pool of 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 black authors who have lived in this country and even in other countries in England, throughout the world, who have created works. No less impactful and no less empower, no less powerful than than their male or or white or otherwise well respected contemporaries, but have been ignored and and shuffled to the sidelines because of uh, systemic racism. Because people say, uh, "I won't, I don't, I don't think it's time for a black author to be published," or "I don't think it's." I don't think it's a, a good waste of your college education being the first black person from call to, to, to graduate and, and get accepted into this college in this area to pursue letters. You should, you should do something more valuable with your time. Those, those unfortunate circumstances and, and the like are upsetting. And though I'm not going to talk about Maya Angelou, I do want to bring one thing up that I find odd uh, and I've never really mentioned before. And I don't know if people know about this, but please tell me in the comments. If this has been a case, uh, especially my my listeners of color, uh, this is a story. When I I worked at a a place called Media Play, which is a store that does not exist anywhere anymore. It was think of a Best Buy that also had a Borders in it, and and like a music store. It was weird when you went into a Media Play. It was like there was a cross shape right in the middle of it right big gigantic big box store huge the the whole back left section was music the whole back right section was books the whole front right section was movies and the whole front left section was video games but generally computer shit and then inside the cross in the middle was like all the stuff that was between those sections so 
between the uh, computer section and the video game or the, the, the movies was like TV screens and DVD players between the, the, the music section and the computer section was like CD players and stuff. And then, you know, you, you can kind of, you can kind of get the feeling. Why I bring this up is I was a voracious reader when I was in school and going here afforded me the opportunity to work in a bookstore, sort of. And I asked to work in the bookstore and they put me in the fucking video section for reasons. But I would always go into the book section and try to keep up on stuff and I would get this and that. It wasn't exceptionally large, but it was about the size of like a small Borders, which if you remember Borders books, so it had tons of stuff. If you if you can only guess, anyone that's in a bookstore can guess what our, our number one seller was. Our number our two number one sellers were. I'll give you a second. Cookbooks and fucking Bibles. And not Bible Bibles, but non-Bibles. I don't even know how to describe these things. If you're not a religious person might know what the hell I'm talking about, and people that work in bookstores will. Anyone else that's not a religious person won't understand what the fuck I'm talking about. But it's a Bible that's not a Bible. It is a Bible that is a, like, just a, 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 all the shit that they don't want you to read about has been cut out and then replaced with how great the other sections are. But being the voracious young reader I was at the time, I wanted to read stuff from everybody, you know, and, and get stuff. In. Like non, non-American stories were actually one of my first favorite things to read ironically enough, I don't know if it's really ironic, but um, when I was a kid, I liked Greek mythology and Greece was not America. So in my mind, I liked stuff from other cultures, right? So I eventually got into reading like Japanese books that got translated into American, not any exceptional ones that you might know. I think the one I can remember that I read was called The Ido Road. Uh, which was good, if not oddly sexual in places, but very informative uh, and interesting. And I don't even think it was actually probably by a Japanese person. But uh, I always wanted to try to read stuff that was from not America. So for reasons, you know, just because like I wanted to read all the cool stuff. And I I was getting to a point in my early to mid-teens, I got this job when I was like 17, 16, 17 years old that I, I was running out of, of good, basically white authors. And all the ones that I was reading, they all wrote the same fucking stories over and over again. And I never saw anything interesting. So, or this story is fucking finally going to go, is there was an African-American literature section in this bookstore that was not in the shelves. And I'll never forget this because it struck me as weird. But I was also really excited. So... How this, uh, how this set up is if you went back into the book section, there was this weird little area that was like a, like a lounge, like at a Borders or a, or a Books a Million or anything where you could kind of like sit down and, and hang out with a book for a second to see if you wanted to read it. So it was like four uh, couches and like an like a ottoman or whatever. And on the other side of that was a tiny little mini aisle and then the bookshelves, which were, I think they went, 12 deep, like one, two, three, a space that led to like the employee areas and then all the rest of them and the walls and all of that. It started from nonfiction in the back, which was mostly like memoirs from, from rock gods and shit at the time. And then went up into religion 
And then on the other side of that, actually at the border of the religion section and then the, the, the fiction sections, which were on my side of this, as I'm describing it close to the lounge were the uh, fucking left behind books. If anyone remembers those, which is a uh, kind of self masturbatory postmodern Christian attempt at writing a, a, a compelling post-apocalyptic novel in which the rapture happens. And then, you know, some, some sinners are left behind and they've got to survive in the lawless, godless wasteland while still, still somehow finding their way back to the, the good graces of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I tried to pick up one of those once and I, I remember I got a couple of pages into it and I was like, not for me. But if it's for you, go ahead. You read, read whatever the fuck you want. Don't let me talk you out of it. The African-American section was a two by two, like a two foot by four shelf standee thing, like made out of wood. And it was on the other side of the, of the whole lounge. And it was alone. And it said big on top of it, African-American literature literature and i went to it fuck i was like oh this is fire like black people have their own fucking books i want to read black people books black people are fucking cool maybe they got some like neat shit i've never even heard of all porno to the fucking number porno books and i mean like the sleaziest low rent fuck like fuck novels you've ever read in my life or your life I remember the backs of them were almost like if I, if I had to fucking read them out loud to you and you didn't know I was reading off of a back cover, you'd think I was being a fucking racist because it was like, you know, like Janie's the new, the new D girl at the studio, though she's like thick and pretty and likes to dance. She doesn't know that, j-rock the producer is about to rock her world and blah 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 blah. and then you open it and it would just be like chapter after chapter of fucking which i I don't knock that that those we had a section for those books though we had fuck books in in media play and you could go read the fuck books in the fuck book section Uh, if you guys don't know what i'm talking about there are romance books and there's fuck books and fuck books are just straight up porn it's like liter literotica but published somehow erotica is i guess what you call them but not all the time i feel like erotica is like a little bit more like soft core like oh yeah and then they kind of like made love and and stuff fuck books are for dudes <laughs> like I had to, they, they they have their own style to them they have their own their own flow i've read a bunch of them because they were everywhere on deployment You've never seen guys get in the literature. I remember one dude was talking to me one time on deployment. He's like, you know, man, you, I always thought you read like way too much, but I checked this one out. I just found it's just a fuck book. 300 pages of like dead ass setup and porno and then scene. There's no feeling about it. There's no character development, but that was all this African-American literature section was. And I mean, there was no fuck, no fucking James Baldwin, no Ernest Gaines hidden in there. You know what I mean? Just in case like the, 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 the inquisitive mind wanted to find something that wasn't like somebody getting slammed out at a fucking rap studio. There was nothing. 
And at the time I was just like, eh, whatever. Cause I'm me. So I don't know. I have my own reactions to stuff. And my reaction was, I don't think this is right, but I guess maybe the black people that want to buy books when they come here, just want to buy porno books. Or maybe this is just a way to have porno books and not label it porno books. Like that's as hard as 17 year old me thought about that. But looking back with 2020 vision from the future, that is the most horrifying shit I think could have ever been put in the book section of, of a fucking, of a fucking bookstore, save like just for Nazis. <laughs> what the, like, because, you know, when, I, when you think about it, if I think about it outside of myself, which is a thing that I did not learn how to do until I was in my mid-20s, really, you know, 10 years almost after this. Imagine being uh, me. Imagine being me, 12 years old, but I'm black and I love reading and I'm all about stuff, but, you know, I'm getting burned out on Stephen King and I want to, I want to see some other stuff. And I go into fucking media play and I'm like, oh, they have a, they have a fucking section that's just for me. This is where black people can get books about us. And then I've, all I can find is like badly written smut. <laughs> and they set that out for them. Those were, that was a curated list. We bought those books to fill that section. Motherfuckers would go in to catalogs and say like i want this to fill my african-american literature literature section you know it didn't just spring up that's not a flower that grew on its own in a forest that shit was fucking planted and watered and fucking fertilized into the goddamn thorn bush it became and it blows my mind that i never even like i never put the pieces together when i was a kid you know i I wasn't that smart of a child, but even then I was like, what the fuck? That's weird. (laughs) So I guess my, my question is, did anybody else have like a a problem or come across something like that when they were, when they were younger, I had completely forgotten about it until I went to a local bookstore that's here in Louisville, Carmichael's. Shout out Carmichael's if you're ever in the Louisville area and you're like, I need something to read, go to Carmichael's. It's locally owned. It's small, curated, intelligent. They have, you know, sections and like areas for books from people of color. And like, they'll have like standouts and settees and stuff where they're like, hey, this is our collection. If you want to read some great stories, I suggest this person and this person. She's new. She's not. He's a traditional, like everyone should read him. They have like that kind of stuff. And I was like, I was at, I think it was, at, I was actually at a Carmichael's and I was like, oh, they got an African-American section here. And it was just like all stuff that you would expect, you know, my Angelou, a lot of other names. I feel like an asshole because I can't just like rattle things off like that. I'm sorry. It's because, you know, I'm an ignorant motherfucker, not because those names aren't worth knowing. Um, and then that, that story popped back into me and I was like, holy shit. There was a African-American section. It said African-American literature. I'll never forget that at the fucking, at that fucking place. And if it had had like a mix of stuff, it probably wouldn't have struck me as crazy, but it was all fuck books. And I guess that's my question. Does anybody else out there, please respond. Westsidefairytales at gmail.com. 
uh, hit me up on Facebook, Twitter. Did you ever come across that? Especially my, my, my listeners of color. Did you ever come across that? And when you did, or if you did, what was your reaction? Like, was it, I don't even, I don't even want to, I don't even want to try to assume. I just, I really want to know because fuck <laughs> that, that, that wouldn't exist. That, that would get put up and fucking 10 minutes later, it would be, everybody would be on Twitter just gassing the fuck out of that thing. But I, I leave the question to you. Please, please tell me. Um, if this is on YouTube, comment on the YouTube. I, I, I desperately want to know. I, I need to know more about that shit. Actually, also, if you're a third degree removed, if you're a bookstore owner and you set one of those up, what was your intention? <laughs> Why? Why did you do that? What was, uh, what was the overarching um, thought that you had when you set up that, that, that standee on the other side of the other books on the on the other side of a fucking river of nothing, apart from all the 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 the, the general population, you create a fucking standalone fuckbook ghetto. What were you thinking, and why? Please, please let me know in the comments down below. <sighs> Pan's labyrinth. <laughs> um. Pan's Labyrinth is obviously a 2006 fantasy film. That's what they say on, on, on a lot of its basic descriptors. I consider Pan's Labyrinth to be a fantasy horror. I consider it to be really a horror film. Um, and it's 2006 Guillermo del Toro really needs very little, if any introduction because it's both new and uh, kind of a cultural touchstone it's such a good film. I've never come across a single person that didn't like Pan's Labyrinth to the point where if you don't, I'm just going to start this off. If you don't like Pan's Labyrinth, please hit me up and tell me why. Because I need to know more about you. I want to know you as a person. I need to know what, why you think things, how you get to your conclusions, because that's fucking awesome. <laughs> that you could that you could dislike something like this. It's just uh, a new you're a, you're a, you're a new sort of animal in my entire existence, but please hit me up. There's probably going to be somebody that's actually like from Spain that'll have extremely, extremely like well thought out and like culturally imperative reasons why this, this is an insufficient film and I'll feel like an asshole. But actually, if you're that person, especially hit me up because I, I always want to know more. I digress. Uh, I'm going to start off by just the interestingness of the title. Pan's Labyrinth is not the name of this movie most other places. The real title is El Labyrinthino del Fauno, which is Spanish for the Labyrinth of the Fawn. Literally. Um, and so they changed to Pan's Labyrinth, which sounds great. Um, and I can't think of the movie any other way, but despite how good it sounds and despite how well it's stuck, there is no pan in this. Um, as I was saying before, I'm a huge, huge fan and study of Greek mythology. I think most of that stems from the fact that we had tons of Greek mythology books in my one-room library at the Catholic school where I went to uh, school for the first six years until they decided they were fucking done with my ass. Um, but... 
that we had tons, tons and tons and tons and tons of uh, Greek mythology books, which are good and bad and, you know, various, but they were not, they were not kids, Greek mythology books, which it's like, uh, you know, a few pictures and Hercules was so strong. He could lift a building. Do you know how much a building weighs more than a car, more than 10 cars? Can you count to 10? None of that handholding shit. I was reading dead ass fucking Greek mythology, which is fire. If you're ever going to get into horror and you want to get yourself a good base on how to write fucking shit that will really stick with people and scare them deeply, get, get into fucking Greek mythology because it is just fucking rape and murder and cannibalism and child eating and, and sawing body parts off to make rivers and shit. It's the best. My favorite, one of my favorite stories I can always remember from that is they were fighting this guy named Typhoon. So one of the Titans arose and his name was Typhoon. And this has just kind of popped up as like one of the stories in this collection of stories. And I think it was Hercules and maybe like Zeus and Mercury had to get together and fucking gang up on this dude because he fucked up like three other gods. And when they beat him, they ripped his tendons out and made the first liar. <laughs> and like Mercury, who is a Hermes, wrote a fucking dope ass song about how bad they just fucked him up, which is, that is death metal. That is the, that is the birth of death metal, which is, that's always my shit. But I digress. Pan in the, uh, in Greek mythology, which exists obviously in Spain, they're closer to fucking Greece than I am. Uh, he's, he's nothing like the, the fawn in this, the, I don't really know too much about fawns, uh, or the Spanish understanding of, of what a fawn is. Everybody has their own deviations and, and uh, evolutions, especially on Greek myths, which became Roman myths, which became like the religion for a lot of people until Constantine decided he saw God in the sky and changed things for good. But um, the fawn in this, I keep saying that because that's how he says it in my, my brain, the fawn, but it's fawn so I keep saying phone, so I'm sorry about that. But it's, it's, it's nothing. That creature is nothing like Pan. Pan is a satyr, human top, goat butt, god, basically. I think he's, he's like a lesser god, if I remember correctly, that works for Bacchus, um, who is the, the god of, of merrymaking and wine. And if there was ever a god I would follow, I would follow Bacchus. Because like when things go bad for different gods, it's always very like kind of it's always you know on brand but whenever you go bad underneath bacchus you either drink yourself to death or you're you're you have a bacchanal and uh his fucking i can't remember what they're called but bacchus has a uh, crew of ladies i think they might be the furies who just get shit-faced in the woods and get naked and go and kill men (laughs) if you piss off bacchus a bunch of naked, screaming, shit-faced women might fly out of the woods and just chop you to bits. That is so fucking awesome. Oh, uh, what happened? Well, I was telling Jeremy he shouldn't be drinking on a Tuesday. It's not proper. He needs to get up for work. Six. Spend his life as a wage slave. Ah, I told him off. And then all of a sudden you just hear... And he's, what's going on? And then just a bunch of fucking 
drunk ass women come out of the woods. Oh Lord. Oh, they're going for my legs. Ah, <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's like pan in them. Very Greek, very, very, very in that mythology. And so the decision to change El Eretino de Fauno, the labyrinth of the fawn to pan's labyrinth is an odd decision. It's one of those Hollywood things that actually threw me off when I started watching it because I have such a, a, a wealth of knowledge of Greek mythology because it was my passion when I was eight that I was expecting fucking pan to have a labyrinth in this and it's, it's not. So the actual title, the labyrinth of the fawn makes much more sense in the context, the greater context of the movie. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a, it's not a real labyrinth. They they spend no time in the actual labyrinth, uh, maybe a total of three minutes at the beginning and end of the film. And then uh, they don't actually even go into it, into it, really. They like, kind of like stand in the entrance, but they don't go into the, a, a labyrinth, you know, a, a series of tunnels. Labyrinth also being extremely Greek. If you guys want a little history lesson real quick. Uh, labyrinth was a bastard's bastardization of labyrinth, right? Uh, not even really a bastardization, but an evolution on that word. A labyrinth is a double-sided axe that was the uh, heraldic symbol slash one of the things that everyone's really known for on the island of... Hold on. And do as Minos, the labyrinth of, yeah, the island of Minos had the labyrinths, right? And so a labyrinthine thing was one of theirs. So they had this little two-headed axe and they were warlike people. And so the expectation of where the word labyrinth came from, because labyrinth is just means like labyrinth, like, like labyrinth or labyrinth, um, and not necessarily really like a gigantic fucking maze. Like there's actually a word for that, I guess, in Greek. I'm, I'm trying to drag this out of my ancient Greek history course from back when I was in college. But uh, it's very Greek. You know what I'm saying? The irony is, is that there is a sort of stylized labyrinth on the, the picture of the, the um, Pan's Labyrinth poster has a very similar to the shape of the uh, the curved top crescent uh, labyrinth. And I don't know, that, that's just a thing that I thought was interesting, but that's also very, 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 very Greek. Uh, but as Greek as you can get, it's not even really that translated from what I understand. It's like almost how you would say the word there. Um, I could be completely wrong. If you're a, if you're, if you're a, a Greek person or, or a professional in Greek history, please correct me. Westsidefairytales at gmail.com. Hit me on Twitter, hit me on Facebook and tell me how stupid I am. I'm fine with it. But that, that, that's, uh, that's kind of all I'll, I'll say about that. But it's the, the labyrinth of the fawn is a much more metaphorical thing. And so we get into, uh, we get into like the plot and stuff. So there is the Princess Moana who is, uh, who were suspected should be actually Princess Ophelia. And Ophelia is our main character. Then we have the antagonist, Captain Vidal and her mother. They're all going to a little place in the woods where Captain Vidal is basically rooting out rebels. He's a a Francoist captain and uh, yeah, he's an asshole. (laughs) 
There's a deuteragonist in the form of Mercedes, who is uh, wonderful. She's like one of my favorite characters ever. And um, they all interact and stuff. I won't get too into the plot. It's, it's go and read it. But um, I, I've been asked a few questions specifically that I'll just get into and address it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of themes in this. And like I said, I call it a horror movie. Uh, most of about half of the plot really is not anything to do with the labyrinth pans labyrinth at all, but rather the overarching plot of Vidal rooting out and fighting against these rebels in Spain. I found out later from a, from a, a fan that told me cause I didn't, sorry, I cannot know everything about world history, but I, I will, I will add stuff. If you tell me anything interesting, in 1944, Francoist Spain, you know, the the, uh, the bad guys won in that. And actually Spain is still a, uh, a fascist, semi-fascist nation, or at least was for a very long time after that and still has fascistic tendencies, which makes a lot of sense because I've heard how much influence the Catholic Church has there to this day. And that's it's never good. You do not want the Catholic Church to be making decision one for fucking anybody. I say that as a confirmed catholic and uh now lapsed and uh <laughs> and and permanently atheist former catholic do not do not ever let them make fucking decisions for you uh but they did so um the one of the one of the things that was brought up is as this is kind of partly a war story does the horrors of war play into it in, in its in its horror uh classification in my mind and i would say very much yes um, because this is, this is very, it, it's very horror, horrifying and not in the, uh, traditional, like war is hell way, you know, where you talk about, um, if you're talking about some, a, a movie like, uh, the classic full metal jacket, which I had to, I had to really fucking work my brain to get a hold of there. Full metal jacket is, uh, oh, uh, all of the horrors of war are there. You go to Platoon, another classic from the time. Really a classic from that, that, that sort of genre of, you know, maybe America's not the good guy here. <laughs> or maybe there they really can't be good guys in war. Um, when you get into that, those things, they're not, they, they have, you know, they're horrific. You know, and, and that's, it's just, we're, we're playing on the word a little bit too much. But it's not horror. Um in the case, in, in those cases, you know, it, it's a very blunt, almost a, especially with, with, um, help me out here, Full Metal Jacket, it's, it's extremely blunt, almost journalistic. With Platoon, it's, I would say, operatic, really. You have a grandiose spectacle and, and, you know, large body motions, really. And behind that, that wonderful soundtrack, the Adagio, by somebody, somebody's adagio. The, uh, no, no, I'm singing. God damn it. I almost just started singing fucking Nessun Dorma. Uh, I can't, I can't sing it because it's a fucking adagio anyway. It's going to take me 30 fucking seconds to get through the first eight notes. But um, that, yeah, it's very operatic. And I would say it's a completely different type of story. Um, the closest you would get for horror in war as a war movie in those in these american iterations would definitely be apocalypse now which isn't that 
hard to say. Although I would say that's very much in the uh, Greek tragedy style of writing. It's functionally speaking analogous to the Odyssey and of course, heart of darkness by Joseph Conrad. Um, those are all easy references to, for me to make because I've, I've talked about them in horror and the club uh, literally a year ago when I was talking about Toda Americana. It's actually kind of nice to kind of nice to, to, to think back. It's been a, a year and, and, and we're coming back to the same kind of conversation points, but still not very horror in the case of pan's labyrinth. It is captain Vidal is basically like a fucking slasher. Like really? Uh, his violence is, is omnipresent even when he's not doing it, you understand him as a dangerous figure and working around him and staying outside of his clutches is how you survive. He's, he's very much uh, a, a single-minded, direct and purposeful killer. He is part of the grand tradition of Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers, which, you know, he, he's got whatever his backstory is that he has on his face, he's just, he's just a murderer. You don't really see much deeper than his skin. And when you do, you find that it's just more of the same. And there's, there's more conversation I'm going to have about that later because of another thing somebody brought up. But yeah, that, that is very much horror in the, the horrors of war thing is because, you know, I knew guys like that. I still know guys like that who are like that uh, and were like that in the military. And if they would have been let off the fucking leash the way that Captain Vidal was, where or given orders really that would have allowed that them or like him in the case of the, the the show to just do shit like that, there would have been no hesitation, no remorse, no no second guessing. They would have just fucking done that, done that sort of shit. And I can't say that I'm I'm a particularly immune to to criticisms in that too you know i was in the military and it's it's a hell of a thing to have a lot of power and a gun and you know the authority to use it it's an an extremely extremely large amount of responsibility that i think most people shouldn't have and i i will go to my grave believing should not be foisted onto the shoulders of of men that can not even legally drink yet uh, in <laughs> I always thought about that argument when I was in, in school. I'll get back to what I was talking about. But uh, after after I got out of the Marine Corps, I, I thought a lot about the argument that I gave all the time. Like, yeah, man, I can't fucking drink, but I can go shoot people. And you know that is very much a case where the inverse is is, is true of the converse. Like, or I don't know how to say that. I might have said that right. It's a logical expression, but basically if things, if, if something's true in one direction, it has to be true in the other direction. Otherwise it's not actually true. And there's something, something that's fundamentally wrong with it. And yeah, you are allowed to go kill people and you aren't allowed to drink. And that does not mean that you should be allowed to drink. I don't think that kids that are, uh, I think that kids that are under 21 should be strongly dissuaded from drinking alcohol. They still drink I don't live under a fucking rock. Like I know you can go get shit faced at 18. I didn't get shit faced at 14 and all of that is available to you. And I don't really, I don't really see reasons for it to be legal or illegal in either direction, because I don't think it's really going to change the result. Kids are going to get shit faced drunk. If anything, honestly, yeah, the drinking age should probably go down. 
But that does not mean that at 18 you should be allowed to go out and fucking kill people. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's something that should be such a fucking emergency measures only that it never happens. Like it, you, you should be fucking horrified that a 25 year old has a gun. I was 25. I was, I was, I was 19 combat fucking veteran feeling like super confident. And then I kind of realized like later on that that was kind of just unique to me and being in the Marine Corps. You know, I, I ran into a lot of guys that were in the fucking national guard, the, the air force, Jesus Christ. And, and, and honestly, a lot of people that are in the army and I'm like, what in the fuck? How the fuck are you armed? You could barely fucking make your bed and wear your uniform. And they, they gave you a fucking gun. <laughs> like, what the fuck? You know, I'm not knocking you. If you're in the army, I'm, I'm kind of knocking you. You know what I mean? Dude, I'm a Marine Corps grunt. You know where I stand. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not necessarily knocking your service. But just like the, the thought if you don't know this as a civilian, people listening to this, the amount of people that are armed, armed infantrymen in the army is fucking massive compared to the amount of people that are armed infantrymen in the Marine Corps. It's, it's I think, to a, almost 10 times or something like that. Like the Marine Corps only has like 250,000 people in it or something like that. I can't remember the real number, but of that only 17 percent are grunts. And uh, that means that you're an infantryman, which, you know, you're actually going to have a rifle and go out and be a guy with a gun around people. Um, And, you know, some of the other, some of the other people detached too, and, and they're out there, but to be that Marine infantryman, you have to go through a fucking full, really just like a full six, seven months of like basic training, but then you're constantly training after that. Your job every fucking day is you wake up, you fucking get screamed at by people that are in their late twenties. And then, you know, you, you run and you do drills and you go to fucking ranges and you shoot and you shoot and you shoot, 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 shoot targets constantly. You know what I mean? And I mean, that's like constantly for us, which is still only like once or twice a month. But you shoot moving targets and you shoot non-moving targets and you shoot targets while you're moving and you shoot targets from buildings and all this shit and, and vehicles. And even at the end of all that, you're still not that fucking good compared to like a Navy SEAL who does all that shit, but somehow fucking more. And like their basic training is two fucking years. So they're really competent. Then you take like all of that that you have to do to be a Marine infantryman and like take strip all of it away to like your it's two days of fucking one weekend a month, two weeks a year. And that's the National Guard. And then they, they just get to carry those same rifles that Marines use to fight fucking terror in the Middle East and shit, you know, and you can feel however you want about those conflicts. I'm not really necessarily getting into that, but you could point those fucking guns at civilians. You're out of your fucking mind. <laughs> It's such a recipe for disaster. If I went, if I looked at myself when I was 19, I would still just be like, man, I don't know. I'm, I'm still not a hundred percent on you. I looked at myself when I was 22 at the end of all my deployments. And I would be like a lot more, a lot more convinced. Cause I'd be like, this guy doesn't want to fucking shoot anybody anymore. <laughs> yeah. Go, go to Iraq three times as on combat deployments and start talking to Iraqis and shit. And eventually you'd be like, I don't know what the fuck will fix this problem in the Middle East, but it's not me being here. <laughs> this has accomplished nothing. 
but I digress. I, I ran into a lot of people, a lot of fucking people that were real, real sketch when I was over there. I think that's where I was going with that gigantic diversion. But uh, a guy like Captain Vidal, that's one of the questions that people brought up to me. Uh, one of the guys was that um, his, his concern with the movie was that Captain Vidal was not given any positive attributes, which kept him from being a fully fleshed out character. And that's a weird thing, a weird thing to approach because in my opinion, I know a lot of Captain Vidal's that were in the Marine Corps that weren't necessarily captains, but they were maybe one or two of them were captains, but you know, lieutenants and and Lance corporals and sergeants and gunnies and, and what have you. And I think he had a lot of, he has a lot of positive attributes. If you, if you isolate him as a character away from the incidents of the show, he's punctual He's uh, well-dressed, which means a lot in the military. His uniform is impeccable. He shaves. He gets up every day and makes sure that he is, is, is physically prepared for the events of the day. You know what I'm saying? Like there, there's a lot to be said. It might not mean anything to civilians, but if you see a guy that's in the military and they get up and their uniform looks like shit, like you got to fucking watch out for that guy. Because if he's fucking up getting dressed in the very specific and, and dedicated way, but it's still, if he's fucking up getting dressed, what the fuck else is he fucking up? That, that's the military look on it. So he's crisp. He's on point. He's a family man after a fashion. He's dedicated to his beliefs. He follows orders without question. He is dedicated to finishing out those orders to the letter. He does not skimp on his duty. He does not show unnecessary mercy to people. He does whatever it takes to get his job done. These are all positive attributes. They're not good human attributes, but they're also, there are people that are in the military right now and throughout every conflict who just forget their humanity. They, 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 they hang it and put it on a shelf. You know what I mean? If you took him actually out of his uniform and out of his, his roles and responsibilities as a captain, he might actually be a completely different person. And you'll never know in this story because that's not what's required of his character. If you think about it, really, when you watch this film, he's never out of uniform. Even when he's down-dressed, like he's not wearing a shirt or something, he's still in uniform. He's still a captain. He's still surrounded by his men. If you really pay attention, pay attention. He basically never lets them see him out of uniform to any significant degree. Even when he's injured, he applies his first aid to himself without the assistance of his men because he doesn't want to seem like a weak person. He's an ideal soldier. And that's what his, that's really why he's such an effective character because, you know, the story is not about him. He's an antagonist. You know what I mean? And as an antagonist, he's perfect. And it's kind of hard to describe this. You want antagonists sometimes, you know, who have these human character traits so that you can see more about them and you can understand more of like why they are doing this, this evil thing that they're doing. And, you know, what's the more exceptional version of it? But sometimes, sometimes a fascist is just a fascist. The thing about that is, all of what he's doing, we understand as 
people living in predominantly Western societies, as English speakers, a lot of the people that I'm talking to on this podcast right now, we understand that what he's doing is evil. He doesn't think of it that way. And not because he's an irrational monster or, uh, or, or some sort of beast. He understands his goals and who he represents when he puts on his uniform as being for the betterment of Spain. He's not killing most of these people really because he wants to kill them. He wants to kill them because that's his job. You know what I'm saying? But he's not a, an absolute freak show sadist despite the fact that he tortures people and and all of that stuff he's not you know uh, a sneering hand wringing blood licking fucking nightmare he's a force an extension of an illegitimate well maybe a legitimate but an awful civil rights abusing government he's a fascist and that's really what fascists are the the fascist methodology their beliefs is to absolve the individual of their need for or desire for or ability to have individuality in order to prop up the betterment or in in order to prop up the state for their betterment an absolute absolution of self in order to increase the productivity of the nation in order to put the family unit first the worst thing to any any fascist government is the individual and the allure of individuality you can see that in a lot of nazi propaganda nazis never say you the individual german can help they say a german helps so there is never an individual german there is just the German, the German ideal, the Nazi ideal. And what is the Nazi ideal? It is a, a, a sharp-chinned, healthy young man with Aryan features and a desire to help the nation who believes in, in, in Christ but understands the importance of putting the Fuhrer first and above all else of joining the German family unit and finding a wife and producing more perfect german babies for this whole thing and you can see that once once i'm saying all this i believe something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of targrady west virginia months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case but adelaide stevenson a young crime reporter from charleston is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far far deeper than she could have ever expected Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused, Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, 
and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast, due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.